0: Oh, waterfowlers, this is the old timer coming to you once again from downtown Memphis. This will be episode 14, and it'll be President Benjamin Harrison, The Life of a Sportsman. It's a rainy, cloudy, drizzly day in downtown Memphis. I'm sitting here looking at Tom Lee Park. For those uh, who don't know Memphis, uh, right outside our window, as we set smack dab on the river, we look straight north in our 12th floor of our condo unit, and right at the foot of our building and grounds is Tom Lee Park, which is a flat... We're on the bluff, but Tom Lee's a flat stretch of ground that's flat, built by the Corps of Engineer. It's been a park. It's about 200 acres of open land, pretty much. And they have been rejuvenating it for the last 18 months to try to make it into a world-class type of park on the river. It receives many visitors throughout the year, and I expect this upgrade will bring in many more. But anyway, they're about probably maybe 80% complete with that. And for the last two years, there has been no month of May. Memphis celebrates the month of uh, May by hosting the Music Fest, which is the first part of the month, and then the latter part of the month of May is the World's Barbecue Contest. Well, those have not been held the last two years, but due to the COVID, they went to the fairgrounds, which is sort of in the middle part of Memphis, but I saw where they're going to try to do the Music Fest the first few days of May and the barbecue the latter part of May, and that should be quite exciting. That'll be on Tom Lee Park. So after being vacant for two years, it looks like it may go forward. For all of those who not, have not uh, ever attended a uh, barbecue music fest for the month of May, you need to come on down to Memphis because it is quite a deal. There's there has been about a hundred and eighty tents set up for barbecue, and they have a championship uh, cook off and see who wins that. They had to cut that down because they're not quite through with Tom Lee Park, so there will be, I understand, about 120 tenths. But no matter, it is an event, and you need to come on to Memphis and take a look at this thing. Now, we did previously episode 13, which was on President Grover Cleveland. And, folks, he is, was a, and is, whatever, a superb waterfowler. He loved it, had a passion for it, and it was obvious through the podcast that I did on him. So if you haven't heard episode 13, please go and listen to that because it's outstanding. So the one-two waterfowler, avid, passionate waterfowler presidents for us was President Cleveland and the gentleman I'm fixing to do, President Benjamin Harrison. He was avid and passionate just as Cleveland was. It may be just a little bit of difference and the reason why is because we probably know a little bit more about Cleveland because he served two terms. They were non consecutive and they were broken up by Benjamin Harrison, which came in there, and after his, uh, Cleveland won the first uh, term, or finished his first time, then Harrison won, and then Cleveland came in after him. So we had eight years of Cleveland and just four years of Harrison, so that's the, probably the discrepancy and the amount of coverage that they got in the newspapers and magazines. So these two gentlemen, Harrison and Cleveland, was avid, passionate waterfowlers. So let's listen to this podcast, Episode 14, President Benjamin Harrison, The Life of a Swartzman. On President Benjamin Harrison's paternal and maternal side of his family, the blood of Swartzmans ran thick through his veins, and through them he inherited his love of Swartz from a long line of a noted Virginian. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather lived on several of the finest and most historic plantations in old Virginia, which was situated on the banks of the James River. In those days, every planner was an enthusiastic sportsman. As the 23rd president, though so his term was from 1889 to 1893, and the grandson of William Henry Harrison, who was the 9th president, Harrison loved cigars and waterfowling as he was an excellent shot at snipes and ducks and a mean performer with a heavy weight 8 and 10 bore side-by-side, side, but mostly with a 12-gauge. He was only one of two presidents that were the avid waterfowlers, as I have mentioned, as it was said that he had a penchant for duck hunting that had no bounds. He hunted the entire eastern seaboard, both north and south. When he needed to get away for relaxation from the presidency, it was as a hunter of waterfowl, as was Cleveland. He was happiest when he was down on the Potomac or the Chesapeake, blasting away late in the fall or in the Cypress swamps of the James River wetlands. Like President Cleveland, he left Washington, D.C., surreptitiously in the hopes of keeping where he was going from the press. As he said, if it is announced where I am going on a shooting trip, the consequence is that about 10,000 other sportsmen would select the same time and place for their own sports, and I would be harassed by press. After his win over Grover Cleveland in November 1888, that December he escaped his ancestral stopping grounds on the James River, whose 2.5 miles James River frontage was known for its waterfowl hunting. Arriving on a Friday the next morning, the President was up before 6 o'clock. While the others went well hunting, Harrison hunted ducks in one of the river's tributaries, just he and a black pusher in an old weather-beaten boat. He managed to shoot only one duck. Was he sad? No. He was a happy man. The same grounds Cleveland Duck hunted on when he became president were the same grounds President Harrison hunted on. It constituted what was termed the Great Presidential Preserve. And if you have listened to Episode 13, you have a good idea of what the Great Presidential Preserve was. It laid south of Washington and took in the Potomac and the Chesapeake Bay to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. From the beginning of government, according to the New York Sun, presidents had used these grounds for their outings with rod and gun, and that included our first president, George Washington. Now, George didn't quite go down as far on the Potomac as these two gentlemen which I'm covering. About Harrison's farmhouse at the confluence of the Ohio and Miami Rivers at North Bend, Ohio, where he was born, Harrison grew up hunting squirrels, wild pigeons, quail, prairie chickens, snipe, and waterfowl and at such game, he became an expert. But his favorite were quail hunting and waterfowling, which, when he became ex-president, duck hunting carried him frequently into Illinois, where days were spent over decoys on the Illinois River and up into the prolific Kanakee marshes in northern Indiana, when he lived in Indianapolis. He visited the Kanakee for the first time to duck hunt in 1873, and a visit again as the president of luck in 1888 for four days of duck hunting. He returned several times a year after his term ended to hunt with the Rockville, Terry Holt, and Indianapolis Hunt Club. In March 1890, Harrison hunted on a bar with decoys at the Benji's Duck Club on the Chesapeake Bay, hunting with his Nichols and LaFever 12-bore double and did fair on redheads along with some canvasbacks and widgeons, about 40 ducks in all. They voted him an honorary member which gave him the privilege of hunting whenever he desired. How a hunt was reported in a newspaper depended on the political persuasion of the newspaper. Not much has changed, has it? A Republican newspaper reported on the president's ducking club hunt that the president brought down a pair of plump redheads with his first shot and afterwards several flat canvas backs. A Democratic paper averred he banged away all day without doing much harm to the ducks, though he frightened some away. (laughs) That's hilarious. During the third year of his term, he hunted again March 1891 at Benji's in a blind accompanied by the club's old Chesapeake Bay retriever named Cleveland. And obviously, it was named after President Grover Cleveland, who hunted at this same club. Harrison also hunted at Benji's, which I've mentioned. The club was noted as one of the best ducking grounds on the Chesapeake and also noted for its exclusiveness, not inviting many guests. For the day, he shot twelve redheads, two blackheads, which were scops, and a ball plate, which is a widget. The April 1891 issue of Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper featured Harrison on the cover as the featured article showing him in front of the clubhouse with the fifteen ducks displayed behind him while he is shown with his Lefevre Optimus 12-grade side-by-side. The Lefevre was the handsomest one that many had ever seen. It was described in a newspaper thusly, Beautiful Lefebvre 12 bore, which the President has never used before at Benji's, is a beauty and must have cost a pretty price. It is gold-chased and a fine piece, at the end of the quote. After receiving it in the spring of 1891, he used it for the very first time at Benji's Ducking Club. Businessmen gave it to him for supporting protectionist tariff trade policies. It featured a gold eagle inlay on the blue trigger guard with a banner in its mouth inscribed with the phrase Protection of American Industries, as well as a gold inlaid letters initials BH, on the push-button release. The inscription came from the Policy of Protection to American Industries, a theme of the 1888 Harrison Campaign. The Optimus-grade Lafever was an 8-pound hammerless 12-gauge with exquisite 30-inch woodwork fluid steel barrel. The triggers and guard were pure gold, while rich engraving adorned the piece all over. Blue-triggered guard featured a gold-inlaid eagle, which I mentioned, with a banner in its mouth inscribed with the phrase Protection of American Industry, which I also mentioned, as well as gold in inlaid letters VH on the fore-end release button. The engraving is signed by Spangler under the left engraved dog scene. A.E. Spangler was a noted American engraver of high-grade shotguns, along with his brother Wilton, both being engravers for both LeFevre and L.C. Smith shotguns. An acknowledgment from Harrison dated December 14, 1894, which was used for many years in LeFevre's advertisements, read, The gun made for me by Lafever Arms Company several years ago is still in perfect condition. I have shot it a good deal and with most satisfactory results. He hunted four days for snipes during the first week of April 1891 on the North Carolina coast where snipes were reported as plentiful. In August, he went on a gunning expedition for snipes in New Jersey. On September the 5th, 1891, while being polled by bushbusher bush pusher through the brackish right marshes of New Jersey, he bagged 14 railbirds in the Manmuskin Meadows of New Jersey. While hunting with four other hunters, they totaled out at 41. On September the 11th, 1891, he bagged 16 railbirds in the Maurice River Meadows of Delaware Bay in New Jersey, being a one of four hunters who bagged 29 railbirds. In April 1892, Harrison snipe hunted for two days in the Accomack County, Virginia marshes. With several members of the Eastern Shore Hunting Club, they killed an abundance of snipe. After Beheed became ex-president in the spring of 1893, a reporter remarked, No president I can remember ever left the White House so suddenly and disappeared. The reporter found him days later waterfowling at Buckhart Lake, Mason County, on a secluded bayou of the Illinois River near Liverpool, Illinois. Here he stayed on a houseboat named Marion, owned by the Indianapolis Swarton's Club, on which stood a crude and primitive cabin that had a room with four bunk beds, and in that part of the world it was known as a bum boat. He also hunted at Thompson Lake and Spring Lake near Riverpool. Now, for those who don't know, Illinois, that those two lakes were famous for duck hunting. Here he was quartered on the steamer city of Arroyo. In all, he spent ten days waterfiling using his 12-gauge Lefevre breech loader. It was said he uses one of the latest improved styles of breech loaders and is well acquainted with its use. It was during his 1893 spring trip that he used smokeless powder for the first time. His shells were obtained from Oscar Hess of Red Bank, New Jersey, who was a sole agent for the distribution of Walls Roar smokeless powder in the United States. And Walls Road was a German company, and I mentioned it in Cleveland's episode 13. Harrison was so pleased with the powder that he recommended it to his friends. He always kept several substantial, serviceable shotguns. In his will, he bequeathed to his grandson two shotguns, his Lefevre and his Daly, and one rifle. Another favorite breech-loading double of Harrison's was a Parker A.H. grade 12-gauge hammerless with Damascus barrels, which he used on quail, and he was never without a well-trained corner. It was later bequeathed to his brother the gold pistol grip cap wore the inscription presented to J. Scott Harrison by Benjamin Harrison, 1891. He was what was termed as a snapshot, as that's the way I shot. But even during his elderly years, his draw was surprisingly quick, his aim remarkably true. An avid sportsman, he never hunted to just make a bag, but simply to sly himself with a reasonable number of birds, even if more could have been shot. From Liverpool, Illinois, he went March the 22nd, 1893 to his Indianapolis home in the special rail car, Wildwood. Being greeted with cheers and applauses from 5,000 people, he said, "I left you with but, but one certainty four years ago, and I return with the same certainty that I have no other motive in my heart than the honor of the flag, the sacredness of the Constitution, and the prosperity of all peoples." Don't you wish that was true the day of everybody continuing on? When asked by a reporter what his plans were, he said, I have no plans for the immediate future except I will first go duck hunting in the Kanakee and then return home and wait until fall. Then I will go to Stanford University in California for two months and deliver law lectures. In March 1894, Harrison headed to California for some duck hunting where he used his 12-gauge fever breech loader. While president, he also hunted with a Rigged Island Club at Curtook in North Carolina. Although the members were politically opposed to him, all it took was a letter from the president of the club, stating an invitation for the president to shoot, and off he went in 1892. He expressed a wish to be in a blind as early as possible in the morning and to be left only with a retriever, saying he would hunt as the others hunted. He wanted no special attention and declared he did not mind exposure and could stand anything the rest could. The New York Times reported June 6, 1897, that during a February outing he hunted alone all day in freezing weather in a blind at the Ragged Island Club and bagged two dozen ducks, mostly canvasbacks, and that he was the last to return, returning long after dark. A member who watched his shooting remarked the president was good a shot as any in the club. The next day he bagged forty canvasbacks, one swans, and several geese. His shotgun was a heavy, thick-breached 10-gauge double shooting from a blind with 50 wooden and live decoys. At dinner, he was voted an honorary member of the club. In September 1897, the ex-president traveled to California once again to hunt geese with Ed Plant, Ed Crump, and Claude Kagee. And for those who don't, those were three experienced market hunters and guides in California around Sacramento Valley area, Sacramento part of the Central Valley. They were the most skillful callers of waterfowlers in the state. The latter two, Crump and Kagi, particularly so, were great goose callers, and the three of them serve as a great goose calling team of market hunters known as the Doc Stewart Outfit. And as I didn't mention, Doc Stewart was another excellent outfitter. he was an outfitter and he but he was an excellent goose caller too. The hunt occurred on the Glade Ranch north of Rio Vista. That morning Plant raised a geese from a distance field with his calling and had them circling above the ex president, who killed seventy seven honkers, seldom a missing his bird. He stated that although he had enjoyed fine goose shooting east of the Rockies, he had never seen anything to compare with it. The sport and system connected with it, so far as I know, have nothing like them elsewhere. He also hunted in the San Joaquin Valley. The pet where he hunted during a two-day goose hunt became famous and was named the Harrison Hole. Here he and four others killed over 400 geese, mostly snows. Now, a hole was a pit dug in the ground for the shooting of geese, and sometimes ducks, surrounded by decoys both live and artificial. Harrison was one canvasback ox who loved nothing better than to get up very early on a brisk morning and set in a duck line in the marshes of the Chesapeake Bay to wait for canvasbacks to appear. During later years, he didn't have many opportunities to hunt, and when he did, he confined himself to quail hunting, almost exclusively with a well-trained bird dog, no longer able to withstand the cold weather required for waterfowling. An avid conservationist, he strenuously condemned the wanton slaughter of any kind of game and was a staunch advocate of all game protection movements. In 1890, he signed into law bills creating three national parks, Sequoia, Yosemite, and General Grant. In March 1891, working with the Boone and Crockett Club, he issued a presidential proclamation setting aside 1,500 square miles on the south and east of the Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming as the nation's first forest reserve, first unit and that eventually became the National Forest System. A year later, he issued an executive proclamation setting aside a track in Alaska as a forest and fish culture reservation. Known as the Afog Forest and Fish Coastal Reserve, thus creating what was in effect, if not in name, the first federally managed National Wildlife Refuge. By the time he left office in 1893, Harrison had protected 13.5 million acres of forest reserves. For waterfowl conservation, Harrison is acknowledged to have been the earliest known studying president and the highest office individual to have been involved with migratory birds. On official presidential White House letterhead, Harrison responded to an October 1891 letter written to him by W.E. Elder, a member of the Chapman Fish and Game Protective Association of Chatham, New Jersey, in which the association was asking for a closed season for migratory birds. The president's response in a personal pen letter is among the earliest known acknowledgments from the federal level of the wisdom behind protecting game birds. He wrote, I have your letter in which you discuss the necessity of a closed season for migratory game birds. I do not doubt the adoption of legislation by the states prohibiting spring shooting of these classes of grain birds would greatly tend to increase their numbers, and I have sometimes thought that it was essential to the preservation of some of these species. Very truly yours, Benjamin Harrison. Historians have paid little attention to Harrison and credit Terry Roosevelt with the birth of conservation as most government records cite 1903 and Pelican Island in Florida as the year and place for the first National Wildlife Refuge. However, it was Harrison who on December 24, 1892 established the Alphagnac Reserve mentioned above. This refuge was more revolutionary in concept than any at the time realized. For while intended to protect islands, salmon, and marine mammal resources, the bill also defined Afognac as a wilderness area. Over 15 years, Harrison, Grover Cleveland, and William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt set aside more than 94 million acres as forest reserves, renamed National Forest in 1907. Forest reserves were set apart by Harrison in the state of Wyoming, Colorado, Oregon, California, and Washington, and then territories of New Mexico, Alaska, and Arizona. These, and in the sense, all the forest reserves of the United States established at that time constitute a great national memorial to Benjamin Harrison. Waterfowl, that's the end of episode 14. I hope you enjoyed it. It has been my pleasure over the, gosh, I don't know, I started researching 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And it's been my pleasure to find all of this stuff on Benjamin Harrison and Grover Cleveland. And George Washington, it's just remarkable that these gentlemen were able to escape from their busy presidential concerns and get down there to hunt as much as they did. Unbelievable. So we all need to be real proud of these three guys, especially the latter two, Harrison and Cleveland. I can't believe that's episode 14, but I, I'm a little confused on what I'm going to do episode 15. I think I may do side hunts, and I doubt there's too many of you out there who really knows what a side hunt is, and I'm not going to give you any hints. You're going to have to tune in for episode 15, and I put one out every uh, Tuesday, uh, and I'm easily found on, if you just, if you want to get into Google search and just type in historic duck hunting stories podcast, it, it'll click up a bunch of websites where you can go to to pick up on my podcast, and as, it, as always, I will, uh, transcribe this you know text message in the text into my blog on my website waterfowling.net, and please visit that not only on my blog site on my website but i have under the blog all kinds of other different old-time waterfowling stories that i haven't even done the podcast on yet so you can read some of those also and you can see also the books that i have available as i mentioned i had two uh, two in print but one has gone out of print now Waterfowling vignettes and have only a limited, maybe nine now left on uh, historic waterfowling images, which cover nine southern states, and it's really all images of old-time duck hunting in those nine states. It's got a little text content to go with it, but if you want one of those, you better order it, you can get it through my website by contacting me. So we're going to end here with a reflection. From boyhood to manhood to old age, the outdoors has brought us the beauties and wonders of Mother Nature and we have basked in the pleasures which a bountiful god permitted us to enjoy none are so precious to our hearts as the beauties of his glorious creation in which we see mother nature in every stage and as we grow in knowledge and wisdom of her ways our love for her increases in old age it is the sights that we revisit that we have stored in tender memories where we camped and hunted with our sons and daughters and were the happiest To those who have a longing for the outdoors, stop. Do not wait to enjoy the beauties of Mother Nature until it is too late. The English nature writer John Richards Jeffreys tells a little boy named Guido why pleasures are squandered by many. He quotes, If you do not gather the flowers now and watch the swallows and listen to the blackbirds whistling, then Guido, they will never pick any flowers nor hear any birds song." They think they will. They think that when they have toiled and worked for a long time, almost all their lives, then they will come to the flowers and the birds and be joyful in the sunshine. But no, it will not be so. For then they will be old themselves and their ears dull and their eyes dim, so that the birds will sound a great distance off and the flowers would not seem bright. Therefore take your outings now so that you may pick the flowers and hear the birds' songs. And enjoy Mother Nature before your ears are dull and your eyes are dim. In Mother Nature, you are never alone. She will teach you a great truth. And may God bless you.